Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for February 4th, 2020. got another interview for you guys today. Uh, I'm very uh, excited to be joined in a moment here via Skype uh, by Daniel Bessner, uh, who is the Pyle Associate Professor in American Foreign Policy at the University of Washington, uh, also a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, uh, and David Adler, a rare uh, two-person interview today. I don't know if we've, I've ever actually done one of these. Uh, uh, David Adler, who is the policy coordinator for the Democracy in Europe movement, uh, they have written, co-written, hence uh, the double interview, they've co-written a piece uh, last week, or they co-wrote a piece that appeared last week in the New Republic called To End Forever War and the Dollar's Global Dominance. Uh, the role of the dollar as reserve currency is the global reserve currency or the main global reserve currency uh, is something that I've mentioned before uh, in different uh, formats on the podcast here and is also uh, in the newsletter fx.substack.com if you're not subscribed uh, and mostly in the context of the leverage and the power that it gives uh, the United States in global affairs to sort of influence and steer other countries uh, in the direction that we want them to go. Uh, and uh, again, sort of in the context, the, the reason that I, I've talked about this several times is uh, in the context of the use or overuse uh, of U.S. sanctions. The United States, when it levies sanctions nowadays, does something called an extraterritorial sanctions, uh, which basically mean uh, they don't just apply to U.S. companies or to companies that have a presence in the United States. They don't just apply to individuals who are citizens or residents or have some other connection to the United States. They apply to everybody, every company, uh, every individual all around the world, theoretically, can be hit by these sanctions. Uh, and what that can mean at sort of the maximum level is that the United States can cut uh, those entities off basically from the dollar, from U.S. banks and the U.S. financial network and therefore from the dollar. And that has huge impacts uh, because the dollar is so dominant as the global reserve currency. It has huge impacts uh, for these companies and these individuals uh, if they want to do anything really internationally, if they want to do any kind of business internationally. Uh, traveling, I think, even becomes difficult. It's, it's uh, you know, hard to open a bank account because pretty much every country, almost every country's banking system comes through the United States at some point or, or you know, requires dollars at some point. So it, it, it's really, uh, they're very powerful sanctions. Uh, and the United States has fallen in love. It's become obsessed with levying these sanctions at pretty much everybody. Uh, the idea being, uh, the defenders would say, this is what how we prevent more wars by uh, using sanctions instead of military force. Uh, what Daniel Bessner and David Adler have posited here uh, in this piece for the New Republic uh, that we'll be talking about in a moment is that uh, that's not really the case. It's not a, a 
sanctions or, or military. Uh, it is, in fact, an and or, or, a, or an and, really, uh, that the sanctions and the, the dollar's power as a global reserve currency goes hand in hand with U.S. military dominance, uh, and the two feed off of each other to create and, and maintain uh, the American empire that we all know and love so much. So, I'm very pleased to have uh, Daniel and David here to talk about this because uh, this is something, this is a topic that I can sort of discuss on uh, the level of what does it mean for other countries and, uh, you know, what are the possible outcomes, including, you know, countries deciding to move away from the dollar. Uh, but these, Daniel and David are going to be able to dig into the nitty gritty of what, where does this actually come from? Where's the idea of dollar diplomacy uh, and the, the power of the dollar feeding uh, the American empire, where does that all come from? Uh, and what are the real kind of serious implications, not just in terms of uh, international affairs and U.S. foreign policy, but in terms of uh, people who are somebody who's looking at this as a problem, as it looks at American empire as a problem uh, from the left, you know, uh, presumably, uh, and wants to do something or, or is looking for ways to sort of dismantle the architecture of that empire. This is one of the big, uh, I think, less talked about ways that the empire uh, sustains itself. So uh, we're going to, I'm going to get them on uh, the Skype here and we'll get started with the interview. Okay, I am joined by David Adler and Daniel Bessner. Uh, their piece, again, in the New Republic... Uh, is to end the forever war, end dollars, end the dollar's global dominance. Uh, David and Daniel, thank you for being on the show. Um, thanks for having us. Uh, we we appreciate it. Isn't that right, David? Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. <laughs> I should say uh, up front, I don't think I've ever done a two-person interview uh, before. I may have just on one occasion, but uh, we're like all over the place. Daniel is a professor at the University of Washington, so he's out on the West Coast. I'm uh, in D.C. And David is in Europe, so we're uh, really a global podcast today. Uh, yes, uh, rootless cosmopolitans all around. <laughs> So, all right, I wanted to have you guys on because uh, the the dollar and its role in sort of maintaining American empire is something that I've written about uh, in my newsletter. It's something uh, on occasion I've talked about on the podcast, mostly in the context of uh, sanctions and sort of the overuse of sanctions and whether that might cause other countries to uh, rethink the dollar's role as the, the global reserve currency and how much power that gives the United States. Uh, but I, I think it, it's, I'm very happy to have you guys on because you can sort of explain what that means, I think, in a way that I'm, I'm not able to. Um, and your piece does a, a, a nice job of sort of reaching back into uh, the origins of the, the dollar's role, uh, both as a global reserve currency and as a tool of, of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, let's start there. You talk about uh, the rise of dollar diplomacy under President Taft uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, this was something that he and his Secretary of State, Philander Knox, uh, who I think was sort of the Rex Tillerson of his time in the sense that he was a lawyer and big corporate big shot. He helped found U.S. Steel. He was a big, you know, kind of business guy. 
uh, they hatched this idea that the purpose of U.S. diplomacy basically was to protect American companies and American business interests. And one of the ways uh, that they conceived of doing this uh, in a way that would not, uh, the idea was it would not involve a lot of military intervention or a lot of uh, fighting, uh, was the idea of dollar diplomacy. Talk about what, what that was and uh, how they came, you know, how that came about. Sure. So, uh, David, I'll, t- I'll take this one because I feel like you're going to talk uh, later when we get to, to uh, more contemporary periods. Um, but just to put this in context, so the United States, you know, let's, let's go back to the beginning. It's founded, obviously, in, in 1776. Uh, the first hundred plus years are a period of, of Western expansion, you know, which might also be seen as, I, I think, correctly, a form of empire building premised on, obviously, uh, chattel slavery of, of enslaved African workers and, of course, indigenous genocide. And, and probably most people listening to this podcast uh, know that story. So you have this sort of expansion westward. And, and this comes to an end by uh, uh, around the late 19th century. And then there's the War of 1898, uh, otherwise known as the in popular American parlance, the Spanish-American War, right? Um, and it's basically called the War of 1898 today by many historians so that you don't just center the imperial rivalry between the United States and Spain, but you also take account of the fact that there were uh, Filipinos involved, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So uh, the War of 1898 is really when the United States uh, steps out onto the the truly global stage, particularly in its occupation of the Philippines, to give it access to, um, you know, the East East Asian markets. Although what people often forget is that the, the War of 1898 comes after not only a century of expansion, but a century of particular uh, expansion into Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, particularly, most famously, the, the seizure of an enormous amount of territory uh, from Mexico, I believe, the, the, the Mexican provinces of Tejas uh, y Coquila, um, and then, you know, the adding on to a, a lot of territory through that. But in a diversity of ways, the United States informed um, the politics of Latin America, you know, uh, Winfield Scott uh, invading um, uh, Mexico itself. Um, and, and these various other uh, other imperial adventures. So one of the things that happens uh, after the War of 1898, when the United States even more as, uh, asserts itself in Latin America with seizure of, of various territories from Spain or, or the dominance of, of various governments in the region, is that it does exactly what you said that Taft uh, and, and, and the Secretary of State did, was that they attempted to replace, quote-unquote, as we, as we talked about in the piece, uh, bullets with dollars. And they did that through dollar diplomacy, with the, uh, which basically traded capital exchanges for uh, American control of various Latin American, particularly Central American and Caribbean um, customs houses and effectively economic decision making. And what's crucial here is that we we talk a lot in our own time with sort of the development of neoliberal knowledge, but this has precedence in, in, in dollar diplomacy, right, where you have basically American economists, people I believe his name was Edwin Kemmerer, being uh, placed in charge of um, Central American and, and Caribbean economies in, in the early 20th century. Um, and so what's important to see here, and, and David, you could jump in now, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up, is that the, the use of, of dollars and, and American finances has been gone hand in hand with military domination and, and control from the beginning of, of, the, of the United States is basically global imperial adventure starting around the turn of the century. And that this um, imperialism was also embedded in, in particular forms of knowledge production about what it means to run a quote unquote good economy. Well, I think yes, one you, of the, uh, sorry, ahead, sorry, David, this. if I could uh, 
just interject for a second. One of the interesting things about Taft uh, and and you know their attempt at dollar diplomacy, as you note in the piece, is it failed uh, to replace, like it failed in its purpose of replacing uh, or substituting dollars for bullets almost immediately. Uh, in the case of Nicaragua, um, where you know the United States bought up Nicaragua's debt, I think to Britain uh, to to sort of uh, you know exert control over Nicaragua and then had to send Marines to Nicaragua to make sure that they paid the debt that the United States now owed. So it's like, it didn't even work then. Uh, and there, the, the other examples I think of, of Knox and Taft trying this, uh, they didn't get very far uh, in, in some, to some degree because the dollar in the U.S. economy just wasn't strong enough globally yet to, to sort of exert uh, the kind of control that they had in mind. So, so David... Uh, if you can walk us through the next part of this story, how do we get from uh, this kind of uh, idea that, that Taft and Knox had that, that didn't, couldn't really go anywhere at first, how do we get from there uh, to a place where the United States really is able to use the dollar uh, in this very kind of uh, heavy-handed imperial way? Well, yeah, so I'm not sure that the phrasing of it working or not working uh, is is the right one, because I think that you know the core claim of the piece uh, that Daniel and I wrote is that rather than being substitutes, as Taft hoped they were, that these were, in fact, complements. Uh, and that's uh, to say, you know, that embedded in that is this kind of core causal claim that uh, military power has both played the role of expanding dollar power around the world, um, we, of course, begin the piece by looking, giving an anecdote of, of, of what's happening right now in Iraq. And, and Iraq is this kind of glorious case of where we look at the relationship between military and monetary conflict. And so far as uh, Saddam Hussein was a vocal critic of U.S. dollar power, in particular the, the petrodollar and the role of the, uh, of the, of the dollar in the, in the oil train, the vast majority of oil is denominated in these petrodollars, and actively sought to challenge that uh, in making a shift from from dollars to euros in Iraq's oil trade in in, 2000, in the year 2000. Uh, and then, of course, we see the United States invading in 2003, and of course, it's a huge question that hangs over um, uh, international political economy debates about how much of that was about the oil, how much of it was about the dollar, how much of that was about uh, other aspects of U.S.-Iraqi relations and the Middle East in general. But what we do know is that immediately one of the first things the U.S. Army did was to eject uh, the Saddam dinar and immediately put uh, U.S. dollars back in the hands of the Iraqi people, of course, under the veneer of, of liberation, uh, and ensure that uh, the dollar continued to play that central role in the Iraqi economy. So to go back to your claim about TAF and how we get kind of over those that 80-year span, I think the argument that we would make is, whether wittingly or not, the fact that the dollar is, as you mentioned, not a perfect weapon of coercion, but it's an imperfect weapon of coercion, means that it requires and motivates fresh conflict in terms of preserving and expanding dollar supremacy. Uh, and that's how we get this kind of two-tailed causal relationship where um, U.S. military dominance is both feeding into U.S. dollar dominance, because of course, what's the point of military power if it doesn't feed you economic fruit? Um, and that in turn, the U.S. dollars is motivating these new these new sources of conflict, whether it's Iraq or or indeed more recently in Iran. So you have this military and monetary nexus that um, ends up being a kind of self-reinforcing cycle. Of course, Taft being a brilliant example of it, but it taking us through uh, from through the mid-century when we could see that uh, when dollar power is really coming to uh, constrict itself around the global economy, and even more powerfully after the Nixon shock, when the dollar really does boom around the world in terms of taking over from gold as as the global reserve currency. 
And and one thing that if, if I could add something very quickly, I think, um, it, and we weren't able to get into this fully in the piece, but I think examining sort of the relationship between dollar and military power is crucial because it exposes a, a lot of the um, intricacies and complexities of, of, of the modern political economy. So as you mentioned, uh, that uh, Taft, you know, and, and Knox were very concerned with with promoting American business, right? And 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 I'm not sure that that holds exactly true today. I think an element of the of that does in fact, hold true, but then you also have sort of international, multinational financial capital, right? So it's interesting to see how, what I want to make clear is that we're not claiming, as some of our critics accuse us of, of, of doing, uh, saying that dollar diplomacy of Taft is dollar diplomacy today. Um, we obviously know that there's a lot of differences between them, but we think that it's an interesting analytic if we want to understand the actual functioning of military power. And uh, I don't know if this is true in other fields, but certainly in, in the field of history, there's much more of an emphasis on um, military as opposed to dollar power. And I think it's important to truly understand how the American empire works is to examine the interrelationship between these two large and complex phenomena. One of the things I think, I mean, the, the, that's changed and the, the reason that the United States is able to, um, you know, get away with, um, you know, the, the, I mean, you know, the, the things that it does with the dollar sort of the, into the opening of your pieces, uh, the the story of about you know the aftermath of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, uh, the Iraqi government uh, you know went on a little brief as it turns out kick about uh, getting the United States military out of the country. The Iraqi parliament passed the resolution. It was non-binding, yes, but it called for the expulsion of foreign military forces. Uh, and really, all it seemed to take uh, to get the Iraqi government to sort of walk that back was a threat. I mean, it was just the, the threat uh, of sanctions and, and sanctions that because uh, Iraq is, uh, you know, primarily an oil-based economy and the oil, uh, is, oil is traded globally in dollars, just the mere hint that the United States might cut Iraq's uh, central bank off from the Federal Reserve or cut it off from the dollar uh, was enough to sort of, you know, get Baghdad to... Uh, you know, walk back. Uh, you know, a, a, a concern that you know, or walk back this this uh, uh, you know effort to expel American troops for having committed uh, you know an act of hostility on Iraqi soil without the Iraqis' permission against you know killing a guy who was there under you know some diplomatic protection. Uh, you know, all these huge sort of violations of Iraqi sovereignty, and yet. Uh, you know, drew have drawn pretty much no response from the Iraqi government because of the power uh, of the dollar. Can can you uh, give people a, a sort of uh, better perspective than than I, I'm, I'm sure I've ever been able to do uh, of the what it means that the dollar occupies this role as the the main global reserve currency and and what is that? What are the implications? Uh, of that for the rest of the world? How, how much does this sort of enhance U.S. Uh, power or, uh, you know, hegemony? So Daniel and I think about the relationship that you're describing uh, along two very different mechanisms that cannot underpin the relationship between military and monetary um, conflicts uh, and dollar power and military dominance. The first one is, is direct, which is that the, the dollar power actively facilitates and enables this massive, in, massively inflated uh, military budget that we have in the United States. Because banks are so reliant on dollars, because the global economy runs on dollars, um, and because the global economy needs the dollar to be a reliable 
source, uh, reliable monetary units. Um, that leaves a lot of room for the U.S. basically to continue to increase its military budget year after year, um, massively outspending its its neighbors and even its its adversaries, with without the threat of um, of expulsion that a smaller country would face that didn't have to occupy that place with a you know with a dollar with such exorbitant privilege. So there's this active relationship with between the dollar and the size of the military budget and and military expansion around the world that so many at least progressives are getting increasingly concerned about. Um, so we make the obvious case that if you're concerned about the size of the U.S. military, it's not enough to focus on congressional powers. You have to look at the kind of monetary foundation that has enabled the U.S. military to continue to expand. The second one is the one that you've mentioned, a slightly more indirect mechanism, which is that, as well, because of this exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar, um, foreign countries around the world are forced to maintain open lines of access to the U.S. dollar. And obviously, the quickest way to do that is to have an open account at the at the Federal Reserve. So this is not just our allies and friends. This is also adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, uh, maintain these, these accounts of the Federal Reserve, which gives the U.S. a great deal of surveillance power and understanding what's happening in the global economy. And there's a lot of recent cases of the U.S. Uh, peeking, peering into those Fed accounts to see uh, how Russian money is moving and where. Uh, and indeed, uh, very recently, uh, within the last few years, I remember um, the, we cut off Iraq's access to their military, to, sorry, to their Fed, Fed account because we saw some suspicious activity in that account and suspected that they were helping to feed uh, sort of Iran-backed paramilitary forces, and so that you know nearly brought the country to a, a, a crippling uh, halt by uh, us by the Obama administration actively moving forward with cutting off their access to their own uh, Fed account. So there's a, that surveillance power, and of course there's the active coercive power they would have exerted in a place like Iraq to sustain and and further deliver kind of force behind their military judgments by saying, we are going to do whatever we're going to do with our troops because uh, you cannot afford to retaliate against us given our uh, sort of gatekeeping power uh, in, in terms of your access to U.S. dollars. So there's these two very different mechanisms, both of which operate to, uh, you know, motivate the expansion of the U.S. military and command its presence around the world uh, with the threat of cutting off access. I wonder, maybe, you know, Daniel, maybe you can get into this uh, to sort of dig a little more into the that that notion that um, the I think the the obvious kind of uh, connection that people make between uh, the dollar or between sort of the the financial power of the United States and the military power of the United States uh, is the one that that uh, uh, David mentioned first. It's sort of the you know our ability to afford this massive military that then you know goes sprawling all over the world and and uh, you know occupies bases. Uh, all over the place, some that uh, we don't even know about until something happens there. Um, but talk about the other side of that a little bit more. Kind of give give us a sense of uh, what are the ways that military expansion serves to reinforce uh, the dollar rather than vice versa. Sure. So, so I think in a lot of different ways. So I think from the from when the United States really, you know, exploded onto the global stage, one of the major reasons that it did so was to pro provide access to markets. And one of the ways that you uh, ensure access to markets is that you you have a military uh, controlling sea lanes 
uh, or, or basically serving as an implicit threat to any uh, to any nation that is going to cut off trade uh, trade with you. So this started, you know, one, one of the major reasons that the United States, for example, founded a Guantanamo Bay in, in Cuba or, or, or occupied the Philippines was to ma- maintain access to these to these um, to these markets. And so what happened uh, over the course of the Cold War, so the United States, of course, essentially replaces Great Britain as a global hegemon, uh, probably before World War II, but certainly during and a hundred thousand percent after World War II. And as it was doing so, it basically traded, you know, things like Lend-Lease programs, things like cash transfers, things like, you know, fighting the war itself. Uh, for access to the, the either former uh, UK bases or the, the right to you know build bases in in, in, in uh, Britain's crumbling um, empire, and so over the course of the Cold War uh, and 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 the last thirty years after the end of the Cold War, the United States has constructed has constructed this enormous global uh, basing posture. Um, I'm, I'm sure listeners know, but I think it's important to to, to remember the fact: roughly 800 bases, probably uh, a bit more if we if we had to guess. Uh, special forces have been deployed the last year that we have really good stats for in 2017 to about uh, 149 of the world's countries, which is about 75% of the world's uh, countries. And what these what these uh, forces do is they basically serve, at least in my opinion, uh, and and not everyone agrees with this, as an implicit threat to all the world's nations that that they that they need to do what the United States wants to do. Uh, that, best way to put it might be they need to abide by the fundamental things that the united states wants in the world so what is that they want when the united states tells you to do something you're supposed to do it and you know for example you're supposed to use the reserve currency of the dollar and that any attempt to basically pursue a position of monetary multilateralism or even to switch from the dollar to the euro um or any of the other currencies will be met with threats and always, I think, the implicit military threat. Now, um, what's interesting to me, and David, uh, you might you might uh, know more a bit about this, so feel free to jump in. What's interesting to me is that analytically, it seems like a lot of the stuff on the uh, international political economy doesn't even incorporate th- this militaristic aspect or this military aspect because it's almost like the water in which we swim. You know, the water in which we swim is its global American hegemony. So we almost forget that the that the global political economy in some sense is an entirely coercive political economy because it rests on this American military dominance. And I would even add something that no one really ever talks about as far as I, I know is just there's a implicit, I think at least nuclear threats. You know, the United States has this enormous military power and, and this enormous nuclear power and can really eradicate the world and the human species several times over. And so it's not something that we often think about consciously, because again, it's kind of like the air that we breathe when we breathe it for so long since 1945, that it's, it's not discussed. But in my opinion, the entire uh, dollar economy, the entire global reserve currency is premised on this inherently militaristic coercive structure. So that's how I think that they're interrelated. But where it gets difficult is that particularly since the, 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 the 70s and 40s, is that capital has really internationalized in, in, in almost a historically unique way where I don't think the United States is, you know, like it did during dollar diplomacy, making the world safe for united fruit, right? It's making the world safe for international financial capital. And, and I think that means something different um, and, and it, it has different implications. So I don't think we've really mapped them out as uh, analysts. When okay, um, now when you guys uh, you know bring up the example of Iraq uh, in two thousand, Saddam Hussein starts questioning 
the role of the dollar in, in the oil business, and then three years later the United States is invading, and, and maybe there's a connection there. Uh, I wonder uh, if you could talk about some other, if there are other examples of you know specific things that uh, people could point to and in instances of uh, the United States taking kind of, uh, or maybe taking action uh, to protect the dollar. And even, uh, you know, sort of without, not necessarily even getting into the military thing, but, but sort of the uh, sanctions that the United States has imposed against Venezuela, the sanctions that it's imposed uh, against Iran, two other uh, large oil producers uh, who, in theory, could, you know, they have, uh, you know, fairly hostile relations with the United States, could go in the direction uh, that Saddam Hussein started to go in in 2000 uh, of questioning the role of the dollar. Uh, I, I wonder almost if, if, to some degree, you know, our, our sanctions against those countries and the, the crippling effect that they've had on their economies isn't almost like a preemptive thing to, to keep uh, either state from sort of having the... Uh, the power, the influence, or the economic capacity to, to even talk about moving away from the dollar. Um, but, you know, t are there other cases where, where people could really look at and say, you know, here's, here's an example of the military, uh, you know, taking action to protect, or the U.S., not just the military, I guess the foreign policy establishment, taking action uh, to sort of protect the dollar's hegemony? Well, I think, okay, so first of all, I think it's really interesting, and I leave it to a historian uh, who is much more, better trained in, in, in methods than I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not a historian myself, but if you look at even the last 10 years of the, the evolution of the politics of OPEC, we see, again, these relations just, the, the whole kind of production, the oil, oil, oil industry laced with this kind of tension with, with the United States and laced with a threat of U.S. military intervention. I mean, you know, I leave it to somebody else to, to kind of prove the causal link that guides us from Ahmadinejad in 2007, talking about the U.S. dollar as, you know, uh, this, this currency that needs to be er eradicated from, from OPEC to create more room for countries that are otherwise, you know, considered adversaries in the United States, and certainly Chavez and his claim that the dollar is a kind of linchpin of U.S. empire. I, I, it would be hard to, hard to convince me that it, it's a coincidence that the U.S. has taken such an aggressive approach to these countries, but, uh, you know, I think that there are people who would say that the causal error runs the other way, uh, and that it's not, in fact, the U.S. that's trying to that's motivating extra sort of military uh, or the threat of military conflict on the basis of... Um, uh, of its desire to protect its, its its monetary power on the world. But I think we can look at some of those examples. I think the OPEC, uh, co conflicts around OPEC provide a, a decent window into uh, how the U.S. government uh, understands the relevance of U.S. dollar supremacy to its overall role in, in the world. But I think it's also crucial to look at the U.S. role, you know, at the at the helm of, of, of the IMF and the World Bank. I think Bretton Woods is another way that, I guess, under the cover, under this veneer of multilateralism, that we see the dollar exerting um, a, a tremendous amount of power. That's also laced with the kind of threat of intervention if these countries fail to uh, obey by the rules of, of, you know, debt and 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 repayment. Um, and so I think that the U.S. has kind of laundered a lot of its hegemony through those institutions. And I think it's helpful if we understand uh, this slightly more indirect relationship between how the U.S. exerts its power uh, militarily and how 
institutions like the IMF are spreading its sort of financial empire uh, alongside that. Um, and of course, we get into this is now where I feel like I'm muddying the waters a bit in terms of your ask for a really clear causal connection. And I think part of what Daniel and I are on a mission to do is kind of parse this out and look fine for those, those, those pinpoint those instances where it's sort of clear that where we can where we can elucidate that logic a bit clearer. But I think it's harder when you have that extra step uh, where the so-called liberal international order has been structured in a way that advances uh, the U.S. kind of financial hegemony and expands dollar power without the U.S. actively intervening militarily to expand it, but then still requires the kind of active uh, sort of deployment of military power to preserve it. Right. And I, I just want to echo that. I think the, the point that, that we're making, and I think that the analytical point that people will need to do going forward and probably us at some point is to examine how they're interaligned in the very structure of the entire geopolitical system. Um, and I think they, they've been they've been interrelated since since the very beginning. So whenever the IMF does a structural adjustment program, that's protecting the dollar's privilege, right? Because what, what, what this is doing is that it's ensuring that a particular form of, of American economic knowledge and a particular form of doing things in the world uh, organized around military hegemony and organized around dollar hegemony is, is being imposed on people who are trying to or countries that are, that are trying to not abide by it. So I think the, the the question that you're ultimately asking is like what are the what are the mechanisms of dollar hegemony in the world that has been defined by by U.S. dominance for 70 years? And I think what we're trying to do in this piece is to begin to actually articulate that relationship. Um, and I think that at, at least historically, people have focused on one or the other, uh, and mostly on the military aspect, as far as I'm aware. Uh, and so I think this is actually remains an open project where we can have you know a clear five-point answer to your question, where in these cases, we've looked at the archives, and it actually turns out that these particular interventions were made to, uh, to protect the dollar's privilege. But if I had to guess, just as someone who studies this period, my sense is that if you look in the archives, it wouldn't necessarily be articulated in that way. It would be articulated in, in sort of the sense of protecting American global leadership, protecting peace and prosperity, and that rarely, although in some instances, I'm sure you'll see it, but but I think it, it, you'd be surprised how it wouldn't necessarily be we're doing this to protect the dollar's privilege. It would be couched in sort of a different perspective, a different worldview about how global peace and prosperity depend on U.S. hegemony. Or the, how, the, how the power of U.S. financial corporations requires the dollar. I mean, it's, it's a secondary, it's sort of a secondary feature when you're talking about, you know, you're not protecting an, an individual sort of, it's, it's not about, you know, Daniel and I talk a lot about uh, the shift from a kind of view of of du commerce that we're talking that you know countries that trade with each other that do more commercial trade with each other end up being more peaceful with each other to a similar claim that was massively prevalent of course in, after the end of history with this sort of du finance this this idea that countries I mean if they're trading in dollars together if their economies operate uh, largely on the basis of a, the same currency then surely that they can't possibly be motivating more conflict and the way the World Bank of course is operated is precisely with these kinds of you know what is what is their metric called? The safety of doing business index or whatever, you know, very much about ensuring that there is this free, nicely uh, integrated, you know, international uh, or global economy. And of course, the, the, what, as, as Daniel mentioned, the kind of water that everyone's swimming in is the dollar. So we can trace this out through, you know, looking at how the relationship between Chase Bank and, and the State Department, and there's, a, of course, a rich historical record of um, how the State Department has uh, kind of woven itself into into Wall Street. Um, but I think it's crucial, and the piece that seems to be missing for both of us when we look at the IPE debate is taking for granted the fact that the context in which all of that rapid international economic integration is happening and the expansion of those financial markets 
is a massive is the sort of U.S. military hegemony, and in the absence of that, much of which, as you mentioned, Derek, is obfuscated from public view. In the absence of that, uh, it's, po- it's impossible to imagine the, the the reach of Wall Street around the world. You raise an interesting uh, question, or you know, interesting point that I want to uh, maybe talk about a little bit more, which is the role of uh, secondary institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions, uh, the IMF, and the World Bank, and sort of. Um, reinforcing this architecture. And, and in a sense, uh, you know, I, I felt like uh, the, I, when, you, when you mentioned that, it, it sort of, I, I thought of the story of Taft in Nicaragua, and instead of sending uh, the Marines in to make sure the debt's paid, now we send the IMF to impose austerity to make sure that, that debts get paid. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the role that, that um, and in, in, in a sense almost, uh, you'd rather have the Marines because the austerity is like this long-term immiserating thing for the people. You'd almost rather have the invasion, I guess, in some sense. Uh, but talk a little more about how uh, those institutions play a role and and really you know what what's behind those institutions because uh you know there are countries that occasionally uh you know under stringent imf austerity and people are you know go out and get out in the streets and protest and will occasionally elect a government uh that says uh, you know, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to play by these rules. We're going to, you know, stimulate the economy and uh, try to get things moving again. But but almost never uh, is there just sort of an outright rejection of the IMF's terms. Uh, and I, I wonder if that isn't because the next step from there is the United States getting involved in a, you know, potentially military way. Talk about how those those institutions kind of relate to the rest of this picture. Um, let me just give a very brief um, understanding of sort of the purpose of their creation, then I'll let David take over. So I think it, it's interesting when you actually look back, uh, you know, at, at Bretton Woods and, and, and one might add sort of the creation of the UN and all of these various things in 1945, is that I do believe that there was an actual impulse at the time to move toward a truly multilateral system of shared governance and even the United States giving up some shared sovereignty, particularly in 1945, 1946, when you're moving, uh, when you're truly, you know, the war is still very, very fresh in the memory. I mean, it's fought for half of 1945, um, et cetera. And so I I think it's interesting because I think, you know, from our perspective today, it's easy to be cynical and we have a, a good reason to be cynical and basically viewing these things as essentially just tools of U.S. hegemony. And I think that aspect was always there. But from the beginning, there were basically two competing elements, whereas that you're going to use these sort of global governance institutions to move toward essentially a one world government. You you have people actually talking about this, like very high ranking people in the U.S. government in 1945, 1944, 45, 46. But they very uh, quickly became tools of, of, of American national power and American hegemony. And I think that that basically relates to the context of the Cold War and that everything that we're talking, it's surprising that we haven't mentioned it yet, but I just want to put it in in this context. I think it's critical to understand the developments of these institutions in the context of the perceived existential struggle with the Soviet Union, which which essentially made a lot of policymakers or at least persuaded a lot of policymakers that international politics was truly a zero-sum game. Um, That if if there wasn't uh, a true confrontation with the Soviet Union for decades, that like world peace and prosperity would end and that there would, there would be a, a nuclear war. So so that opinion basically shifted all of these institutions, not only the IMF, the world, the Gats, et cetera, et cetera, um, and the UN, one might add, uh, away from multilateralism 
uh, toward uh, nationalism, but a particular form of zero zero sum thinking. So I just think it's crucial to understand that all these things are intertwined in a particular understanding of perceived geopolitical Right. And then I guess I, I would only add one more one more piece of that, which is, I guess, a bit, a bit more skepticism than you have, uh, Daniel, about what was happening in in 44, 45 around the construction of the Bretton Woods, which is, of course, you know, Keynes came in uh, the original proposals for the IMF for were for an international clearing union. And then it, the that clearing union was going to be based around this unit that Keynes called a bank core. And this idea would be it would not be denominated in national currency, but precisely would be, you know, this form of monetary multilateralism, which I think still holds a lot of promise for uh, the multipolar world that we're living in and moving toward today. But, you know, the basic idea was you can use that international clearing union to rebalance the global economy, uh, taxing essentially surplus countries and, and, and uh, um, trying to rebalance trade around the world. Uh, this was a policy that was uh, not unfavorable in the eyes of FDR, but when he passed and Truman became president, you had uh, the, a real shift in terms of the negotiations about what that international system was going to look like. Uh, and the threat to the dollar power that Keynes' proposal for a bank war, as much as it would make the global economy more balanced, more stable and more equitable uh, and possibly more pro prosperous in the, in the medium term or long term, which is too much of a threat to the prospects for U.S. hegemony in the short term. So the U.S. killed a proposal for a clearing union, renamed it the International Monetary Fund, which, of course, was um, a la Taft going to be deepening the dollar uh, the, the dollar hegemony through its uh, extensive lending programs. Uh, and there would be no such thing as the bank core. The U.S. would be expand, increasingly expand its uh uh, the role of the dollar in, in the international economy. So this pro the seed of, uh, you know, uh, the, the relationship between the emergence of a, a truly hegemonic United States uh, and the, the monet international monetary system that's been there, you know, uh, in the, if you look at that, that particular moment when I think it was Dexter White or who was it, uh, who, was, who killed the proposal, uh, you can see that... Um, that these that there was always this kind of concern about what it would mean to move towards a more uh, multilateral monetary system, uh, and then the, the with the U.S. very eager to maintain uh, the dollar as the central uh, kind of the central currency in uh, around the world. Uh, I I agree with that. I I, I didn't want to basically Pollyanna-ish about it, but I what I wanted to say is that there is. In my opinion, there was an element of true multilateralism, but I could totally agree with it, with everything David just just said, one hundred percent. I want to talk now, with the remaining time that we have, um, about how you go about dismantling this system, um, and and I think there are two components to that. One is international, uh, and we'll get to that in a in a minute here a couple minutes here uh but but the other is for people who are uh on the left who are you know already kind of um you know understand the the idea of uh american empire from a military perspective um maybe are not as as uh because it doesn't get talked about as much or not as uh you know versed in in the economic financial aspect of the empire um but you know and, and definitely you know sort of uh i think the the interplay of those two things has created the military and the financial uh there's sort of a tight system now i mean they protect one another to an extent uh and it seems like to to come at this from uh either end from from the military side and and try to uh, you know affect things that way or to come at it from the financial end it's not 
uh, enough to do one or the other because they'll just wind up, uh, you know, wh- whichever aspect uh, we're not taking on uh, will cover, you know, sort of uh, resist, uh, you know, and uh, resist any change. How do you guys, you know, what do you, when you think about tackling this uh, kind of uh, symbiotic relationship and the, the network that, or the, uh, the system that it underpins, uh, what, what do you, how do you think, you know, in terms of approaching a, a, a way to, to change that system and do something about it? Uh, I'm, I'm just going to say something very quickly and then I'll let David take over. I think a, another question that, that, that is embedded there is, do you, is the site of struggle national or international? And I think that's a really difficult strategic question that we're going to have to take seriously because it basically American national power protects international capital. And that's a very tough thing, uh, circle to circle to square. Uh, sorry, David, please go. No, I, I think we're st- to be to be perfectly honest, we're still grappling with this. And this is of course, you know, the next piece that Dana and I are going to be writing is kind of articulating what, what, which direction we should go. And, you know, we end the piece tr- trying to formulate this, being clear about what the stakes of this dilemma are that a potential progressive president might face in the coming years. Uh, and that is, should the United States president use dollar power effectively for good, for progressive ends? Um, and there's lots of ways that a U.S. president can use executive authority to crack down on illicit finance, to curb tax evasion, to use the surveillance powers, as I mentioned before, as well as the threats and the coercive threats uh, that come along with um, shutting off access to those Federal Reserve accounts, to use those to kind of coerce uh, foreign governments to to abide by more progressive rules. And you know, using you know, Elizabeth Warren talks a lot about this, by using market access, uh, threatening market access uh, as a way of kind of bringing countries on board of environmental and human rights standards okay you know I, you know we should have a debate about about you know the capacity to use dollar power for good and its inevitable uh, ability to foster evil in that in the wrong hands and i think it's such a thorny question there are some easy areas where i think daniel and i agree that we should be moving as progressives namely actively supporting efforts that are budding inside the IMF to to expand the role of special drawing rights, which is a basket of currencies that would balance the power of the dollar against a range of other currencies. This is approaching the original Keynesian notion of the IMF actually helping to foster this kind of monetary multilateralism. I think it's in those particular institutions where we can start to think about how we can recreate international system and create more room for other countries to be uh, more sovereign uh, and, and less at the whims uh, of an imperial president uh, who may they just want to inflict damage to inflict damage. But I think that we this conversation is ongoing. And I, I have to be honest that I'm not sure I've settled myself for what how we should delimit uh, monetary power for the United States in, in the global economy. Uh, you know, when we look at this, as we've discussed today, this kind of century long series of abuses of U.S. economic power uh, and it's, it's kind of disastrous relationship to U.S. military power. It's, it's hard not to feel like something urgent must be done. But I think being clear about the precise points, pressure points where it makes sense to kind of loosen the reins and other points where we think, OK, well, maybe reserving the right to do this, this or that might be helpful. But this, of course, puts Daniel and I really on the wrong side of the blob, who is very reluctant to kind of highlight these slightly less publicized sources of deep U.S. power uh, in service, you know, you know, with, with the anxieties that it would create a vacuum. Uh, and, of course, lots of people have been saying this, that the second the U.S. steps back from its role as uh, governing the, the global economy with its massive financial might, 
China is going to fill that vacuum and, of course, you know, all the dangerous thing that comes along with it. So I don't think that anyone for, is, has an, a sufficient interest in articulating an alternative. So we're just beginning to kind of roll out uh, a kind of new imagination of what it might look like to kind of slightly unwind uh, those 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 point those pressure or work at those pressure points, but Daniel, I'm, I'm wondering if you if you have a slightly more a muscular vision of of what we could do now. Well, no, I I would agree with you, but I think that that exactly what David said is going to highlight a, a real problem for not if when Bernie assumes the presidency, or really any 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 progressive president or any any someone who has actual left wing commitments is going to face this problem, and this and this is this is it. On one hand, you want to use the power of the executive to enact your progressive agenda, right? Like right. The executive right. is enormously powerful. Um, on the other hand, by sort of redoing that, you're reaffirming an inherently undemocratic institution that in the hands of, you know, not only a Trump, who's obviously a terrible person, but even, you know, an Obama is going to do things that, that progressives should disagree with. And I think this is going to be a very difficult line to walk and, and sort of a, a tension-filled dialectic that I'm not sure is going to be transcended. And this this works in terms of dollar power, like what David was mentioning, um, you, whether you use it you know, to cut down on illicit finance or you try to just end dollar power and move toward multilateral, uh, monetary multilateralism or you do it at the same time. It, it's the same for military power, right? It's the same for any, every sort of power that the United States wants to use in the world. So that's something that I think is going to be a really difficult tension to confront in a future progressive administration. And then second, um, even though the question that we all have to ask ourselves, I think, is an analytical one, in that the, the language of international politics, of international relations that we use, is basically formed uh, in direct response to, to World War II and, and a particular era of great power politics in nation states. Um, and so there's a number of assumptions. So for example, the idea that the world is something that is a vacuum that is going to be filled by one or more powers, right? The very you know conceptual framework of the, of the world as a, as a vacuum might not actually be accurate, right? Maybe the world, there's a different metaphor to use to understand international politics. Maybe the world of nation states that has got that, that has, has guided our thinking uh, no longer makes sense in an era of international financial capital or when the, the biggest exogenous threats are frankly not a US-China war, but climate change and global inequality, right? So I think like what David and I are trying to say and what, what we try to do in this piece is begin a much longer process of rethinking and rearticulating some of the fundamental assumptions about American power, the relationship between dollar and military power, and also at, at its very basis, how we understand international relations. So I think that the, the question of, of what, like, what's our five-point plan? I don't think we, we have that yet because we haven't even done the basic fundamental steps that are necessary to implement a, a particular form of, of socialist policy. On the international end of things, and you've already kind of started to get into the, the implications internationally of, of you know, trying to dismantle the system, but I wonder, uh, you guys cited a piece that uh, was written last year by Stuart Schrader and one of the, uh, about this topic basically, and one of the, the great uh, quotes he has in here is, uh, that uh, basically that that the one thing that unites almost every global actor, whether they're you know nefarious or not, or a uh, national leader or some kind of a kind of uh, you know insurgent presence or something like that, uh, is that they all have to trade in dollars. Uh, and his his quote is: neither El Chapo nor Xi Jinping, for example, have to use English, but both have no choice but to trade across the border uh, across borders in dollars. And that's that's sort of the uh, th that that kind of spells out just how powerful this is. Um, I think it's it's one thing for 
uh, a Venezuela or an Iran or a Saddam Hussein to say maybe we should move away from the dollar. But it's another thing for uh, the Chinese government, the Russian government, you know, real powers who may maybe uh, can can have you know have more flexibility to talk about that kind of stuff because uh, the likelihood that the United States is going to come down hard on them militarily uh, is much smaller because the uh, the threat of a, a, a you know catastrophic war. Uh, it's another thing for those countries to start talking about. It's it's another thing entirely uh, when you have now in light of uh, you know the the Trump administration's decision to uh, tear up the Iran nuclear deal uh, in light of, you know, some other kind of uh, really heavy handed, I think, use of sanctions. Uh, you've got European countries, U.S., traditional U.S. allies even kind of starting to wonder whether they're really, they can continue to uh, abide by this system where the United States gets to dictate to some degree uh, their foreign policy. And I, I, I wonder, uh, you know, I guess a two-part question, like, is the thing that hasn't that has kept these countries from uh, questioning this system up until now, even though you know it has been giving the United States this hege hegemony uh, for a while. Uh, is it sort of a like, you know, it ain't broke, don't if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing? Like it's it's easier to just kind of go along uh, and and not shake up the system until you know you get to a point where the United States pushes so far that that you can't. Uh, you have to do something. Uh, and, and the second, my second question, I guess, is, you know, what level, you know, how far do you think the United States would have to push uh, before this discussion of moving away from the dollar actually becomes, you know, taking serious action to, to do that? I mean, my sense is that uh, <laughs> what we're really discovering here is just how synonymous uh, global capitalism has been with U.S. financial hegemony. I mean, exactly. I think that we're starting to see for the first time what happens when those things are decoupled. Um, and so I don't think it's a question of... So what some of the pushback we've gotten from this piece have been from people who basically, you know, fulfilling Frederick Jameson's quote, uh, you know, are basically cannot imagine what it would mean to for the, the proper end of U.S. Dollar, dollar hegemony around the world. It's just... It would sooner imagine uh, climate change could literally destroying the human race than uh, the human species than than for the dollar to <laughs> significantly decline in its hegemonic power. Um, so I think we're starting to see the, the elements of this decoupling. Of course, making predictions is such a fraught exercise now. But my sense is that yeah, it could. You can imagine a kind of episode. Let's say Trump would have a second term and and continue to use the dollar as a kind of hammer against U.S. adversaries and indeed allies alike against the European Union, where he's been you know basically riling up the Germans. And if, you know, I'm sitting here in Europe. I can tell you how angry, truly angry and prepared, you know, finger on the button the Germans have become in their relationship with Trump. You can imagine how, how much uh, another term of, of Trump in, in office would, may, you know, not maybe it wouldn't in the short, short term uh, basically destroy U.S. financial hegemony, but it would create the conditions for a, a more, it would make it more brittle uh, in the sense that it would move from being this water in which we're swimming to the discovery, I'm, I'm, forgive my lack of a figurative uh, metaphor to, to, to offer here, but it would move from being the water in which we're swimming to something that 
people start to see, okay, well, we can actually move away from this incrementally, but but substantially. Uh, and I think that's the, as in all things, that's the world we're moving toward a more multipolar, uh, you know, sort of system of international relations. And if we're going to do that, you ha we have to have a strategy for binding that multipolar world in a new multilateralism, not just resigning ourselves to the kind of great power conflicts where the blob seems to be moving to this idea. Uh, and by the way, the blob here in Brussels as well, uh, that, okay, well, now it's just a world of empires. So everyone hold on to your money and let's just go for a ride. But, uh, you know, we have to think about what do we mean for those things to decouple and in that process of decoupling, arrive at a more just and multilateral space, as opposed to one where we're resigned to the kind of massive swathes of international conflict. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that was said perfectly. And, and I think it'll also be interesting, you know, uh, as people in university spaces, we're able to sort of think think big. It'll also be interesting to sort of articulate what utopia, what type of utopia we'd want to see, right? Like, do we want a world of 50 currencies or do we want sort of a one world currency and things along those lines? So I think there's actually a lot of interesting thinking to be done because uh, we're clearly in a transitional period and, and transitional periods are moments when sort of new imaginations could be sparked uh, and these uh, imaginations could actually lead to new policies. You know, the idea of a uh, League of Nations or United Nations was wild in 1890, and, and then you have it in 1918, and, and later on the UN in 45. So I think it's it's uh, a moment for for thinking, and, and particularly amongst younger people, to to sort of break out of the the intellectual structures that have really cloistered our imaginations. And, and this is the time to do it. All right, I think I'll end on that note. A a an uncharacteristically upbeat i think <laughs> no for for my podcast uh but but a good one i think a good place to to leave things david adler and daniel bessner thank you so much for being here and for walking us through uh what i think is uh an important and and maybe uh should not not as well uh not as 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 talked about as it should be uh, aspect of american empire thanks so much Thank you so much for having uh, for having us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I hope as we flesh out these ideas, we can come back on and, and, and talk about what that vision of a new monetary multilateralism can be. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I would I would be I would love to do that. So uh, the piece is to end forever war and the dollar's global dominance. Uh, put a link to it in the show description. Uh, again, yeah, thank you guys, and uh, we'll definitely do this again. Take care. Take care. Bye. All right. Once again, I would like to thank David Adler from the Democracy in Europe movement and Daniel Bessner from the University of Washington for being here to take us through uh, the story of the dollar's dominant role in global finance and how that feeds into American empire. Uh, the piece, one more time, is to end forever war, end the dollar's global dominance. It's in the New Republic. I'll have a link in the show description. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. And uh, until next time, uh, I'll take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.